listeners and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books podcast and I'm your host Lance Morgan. Today we're welcoming Rupert Thompson to read from his new book Barcelona Dreaming. But before I introduce him I want to I just want to remind you that Skylight Books is now open so please come by. We have limited capacity um, but keep an eye on our social media for any changes there. But yeah come on by bring a mask um, be respectful of other people and we're, we'll be so happy to see you. We also are still um, offering online ordering in curbside pickup, so order any books on www.skylightbooks.com. Rupert Thompson is the author of 12 critically acclaimed novels, including The Insult, which was shortlisted for the Guardian Fiction Prize and chosen by David Bowie as one of his 100 must-read books of all time. Death of a Murderer, which was shortlisted for the Costa Prize, and The Book of Revelation, which was made into a feature film by the Australian writer-director Anna Kokinos. His memoir, This Party's Got Got to Stop, won the Writers Guild Nonfiction Book of the Year in 2010. His his short story to William Burroughs from his wife was shortlisted from the 2016 Costa Short Story Award. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and has contributed to the Financial Times in the Guardian, Granta, and the London Review of Books and The Independent. After living in many places around the world, including Berlin, New York, Sydney, Rome, Los Angeles, Amsterdam, and Barcelona, he now makes his home in London. Rupert, it's so great to have you here. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Lance. No problem. No problem. It's going to be exciting. Thank you for joining us from um, across the pond, right? I, sorry I said that. That's so... I wish I could, I wish I could actually be there. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's... Well, I appreciate you. It's 1 p.m. for us here, but uh, for our listeners, it's uh, not clo- It's 9, right? Yeah, it's 9.15 in the evening. So thank you for doing this so late for you. Oh, sure. Anything to be in touch with Los Angeles. Uh, thank you thank you we love it we love it um so you have a reading for us today i do um i should set it up a little bit it comes Mm -hmm. from near the beginning but um uh the 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 narrator of this section is uh, a woman called amy she's in Mm -hmm. her early 40s um she's english but she's lived in barcelona for a long time she runs this little gift shop And she's just moved into a new apartment on the ground floor of a building. Mm -hmm. And uh, underneath her in the basement of the building is an underground car park. And Mm -hmm. she she has to get used to these strange noises in her apartment because the the acoustics in the apartment are really strange. So, Mm -hmm. you know, she can hear like people unlocking their cars. She can hear the chink of keys. She can hear people on their cell phones. And it's really clear as if they're in the apartment, but they're not there. They're, they're below, you know, they're underground. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and one night she's woken by the sound of uh, someone crying. Mm-hmm. And it sounds really close and it sounds like a man. And she decides to get up in the middle of the night, get dressed. And she goes down to the under, underground car park to investigate. And she finds this young Moroccan man. He looks to be about 19 or 20 and he's in tears and he's clearly been through something traumatic. And she invites him back 
to her apartment, which is kind of a risk, but she wants to help him. And she gives him a cup of tea and she settles him. And when he's ready, she takes him out onto the street and gives him money for a cab and he, he leaves. And she kind of feels like she's helped someone who is in distress. And she thinks that's the end of it. But then uh, he turns up four days later outside the apartment with these shopping bags. And he says he wants to cook for her as a way of thanking her. So this is what happens. His name was Abdul, he told me, and he was from Tangier. He'd been living in Barcelona for about six months. He'd learned to cook when his mother was knocked down in the street and broke her arm. He was 14 then. As the oldest of three children, he had to take over in the kitchen. His mother would issue instructions from a nearby chair. No, not like that, she said. He said, imitating her. Cut into smaller pieces, stir more slowly. You forgot the salt. He was smiling. He hadn't seen her in almost three years. She was still back home in Morocco. That evening, Abdul cooked a lamb tagine. He'd arrived with everything that he would need, not just the meat, but tomatoes and onions, dried apricots, fresh coriander, and his own herbs and spices wrapped in twists of rough brown paper. He even brought a terracotta cooking pot with a lid. We ate at the small table on my terrace. I lit candles and opened a bottle of red wine. As a Muslim, Abdul was content with fruit juice. His Spanish was no more sophisticated than my French, and he didn't have any English at all, but we had no trouble communicating. I asked him about Morocco, a country I'd never visited. His father's family were Bedouin, he said. They lived in the mountains to the south of Marrakesh. He was open and talkative, nothing like the tense, wary person I'd come across in the small hours of Thursday morning. He didn't seem to find it awkward to be alone with a woman from a different culture, a woman he barely knew. And I caught myself hoping it wasn't on account of my age. At least once that evening, while in the bathroom, I leaned close to the mirror, examining my face. People were always telling me how young I looked, how me and my daughter, Ma, could easily be sisters. But that was just something people said, wasn't it? On my way back to the terrace, I paused in the shadows at the far end of the living room. I could see Abdul through the sliding glass door. Gazing out into the night, with his chin propped on one hand, he looked at home, at ease. The fact that I'd met him when he was at his lowest had given him paradoxically a kind of strength. After all, in his own eyes, he would never be less of a man than he had been on that first night. It grew late, but the idea that he should leave didn't occur to him. His complacency made me smile and I had to turn away so he didn't notice. I didn't want him thinking I was mocking him. Busying myself at the sink, I told him I had to be up early in the morning and that it was probably time he went home. With anyone else, this would have been rude. Not with him somehow. He stretched lazily as if he had also drunk a little too much Rioja. Then he gathered up his cooking pot, which I had washed, and his remaining herbs and spices and packed them into the carrier bag he'd brought with him. Once I'd showed him out of my apartment, we stood on the thin strip of pavement at the front of the building. Aware that my neighbor's living room window was open, 
I stepped closer to Abdul and spoke in a low voice. I thanked him for cooking for me. He nodded, then studied his feet. For the first time that evening, he seemed on edge, as if he was waiting for something. And I remembered how on Thursday night I'd given him cab fare. He was too embarrassed to bring it up, perhaps. Do you need money to get home, I asked. I'll take the metro, he said, or a bus. He turned away, but then he turned back. Did you think about me? I'm sorry, I wasn't sure I'd understood. Did you think about me on Thursday night after I had gone? His eyes were earnest and sober as if the matter troubled him, but I still couldn't work out what he was asking. Before I had time to answer, he spoke again. I thought about you. A car came up the narrow street with its headlights on full beam. And as I half closed my eyes against the glare, one of its wing mirrors clipped my thigh. I let out a faint cry, but the car was already past me and turning onto Avenida Foch. Abdul put a hand on my upper arm near the shoulder. Are you all right? I'm fine, I said. It was a shock, that's all. His hand remained where it was, his gaze intent, unfathomable. He seemed older just then, and I thought I could imagine how he might age. Threads of white in those dark curls and fine lines at the edges of his eyes and mouth, but still something extraordinary to look at. Really, I said, it was nothing. I looked away from him, but felt his gaze rest on me for a moment longer. Then he took his hand from my arm and walked off down the street in the direction of the metro station. I stood and watched him go, his head poised, almost afloat in the air. After what he had said, I could feel my heart beating. It had slowed down and seemed at the same time to have become more powerful, more urgent. And I thought he might look over his shoulder, just a glance, but he didn't, not even once. Wow, listening to you read that, that's so, I could feel your connection to these characters so well. Well, that's the idea, I guess. I mean, you, you write You're these right. people. You write these people again and again, and um, mm -hmm. in the end, you know, they seem more real than the people who turn up at your door. You know. Yeah. I mean, and that's so true. But just like, I don't know. I feel like more than um, a lot of other writers I heard speak, I just felt it in your. I felt the compassion for these characters in a way that I. I really well, appreciate hearing. I think I, I think there's a quality of um, I kind of call it tenderness. You know, I mean, I, I think compassion is incredibly important in in fiction. I mean, I think mm -hmm. I think you can't really write fiction unless you have a certain amount of compassion. Yeah. And you know, there's also there's almost something there's almost something about fiction which is underpinned by the whole idea of compassion. You know, the very idea that you that as a writer, you, you try and inhabit other people's lives, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, you're successful, you, you know, but you're trying mm -hmm. to imagine what it's like to be someone else. Right. And, and there's something about that, which um, I think you can, which I think everyone can do, you know, can carry mm -hmm. through their lives. You know, it's kind of an important characteristic for people to have. Yeah. Um, I, you know, how can you ever help anybody unless you can imagine what it's like for them? 
and you know and and it's and it's hard you know i mean mm -hmm. for instance you know you're black and i'm white and mm -hmm. and it's incredibly hard to imagine what it's like for the other i think you know i mean we do our best you know everyone tries or everyone should try but um you know it's trying to bridge that gap trying to trying to put yourself in in someone else's shoes that i think is incredibly important and that i mean is very yeah, I, I, in your book, it seems like you are trying to do that with your characters, trying to bridge that gap, trying to really, um, and it's like, you're not trying to force it either. I feel like there's a sort of- No, just like, I mean, the thing is, the thing is that it's, and also, you know, in that mm -hmm. scene, you've essentially got, um, you've got the two very different worlds, you know, mm -hmm. you've got the white woman who, okay, she isn't from, Barcelona so she is herself an immigrant but you know she's one of the privileged immigrants you know mm -hmm. she's one of the ones who can choose where she wants to be um, mm -hmm. and then on the other hand you've got Abdul who is you know is the other kind of immigrant the one that we generally talk about who who's an economic he's possibly an economic Im immigrant we never really find out but mm -hmm. you know he's clearly escaping a world in which he can't survive and he's trying to come to a place where he thinks he can and of course something bad has happened so you have the collision of these two worlds and, and you have amy trying to help him and of course this is just the beginning you know when he says did you think about me there's a clue there's a clue in that as to what's going to happen in that particular story um, but it's a huge risk for both of them you know they're about to enter something quite dangerous and it, actually it turns out to be dangerous and, and the reason being is, uh, and the reason it's dangerous is mm -hmm. because, um, in a sense, there's a there's a racist element to to the story. You know, it, it's driven by a character who is racist, and, mm -hmm. and these two characters who you've just heard, who are described so tenderly, they're exposed to the attention of this man who is who is not who is who is a different kind of person. You know, yeah, who's the, who the kind of person we want to change? Right, <laughs> and that, like, yeah, no, that's. I feel like is a very, it must've been, I'm imagining tenuous like bridge to cross finding those like that story in there and finding the right balance to get that truth in that story. Whatever that, like the truth of the characters in that story. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the, one of the things I think that I, you know, because we haven't said, but you know, this, this is a novel, I call this a novel, mm -hmm. but it's actually three, it's right. actually three long short stories. They're, mm -hmm. they're about 70 pages each. And mm -hmm. uh, they're all they're, they're connected by time and place, you know. So they're all set in, in Barcelona in the early 2000s. So just prior to the crash of 2008. So in a, in a sense, it's a pre-crisis book. You know, there's a crisis right. about to happen. And uh, there's a sense of foreboding. There's a kind of feeling that something's about to happen. And all these characters are, are, are gonna be changed. Mm -hmm. um, like a like a storm before the calm kind of thing. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, calm before the other the way around. <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> oh no! Well, I, although I, I like the idea of the storm before the calm. Before the calm yeah, I mean <laughs> that's that's sometimes that's also true. <laughs> you, uh, but no, you were probably like, thinking of the dark before the dawn. You the know? dark before the dawn. Is probably before the dawn. Yeah, you could mix no, but, um, <laughs> no, but I, the thing I was going to say was. Um, so you've got these three stories um, that are linked by time and place, but they're also linked by certain characters. You know, so that so so a character who is in a, who is 
plays a cameo role in one story, you know, just makes an appearance at a party or in a room, mm-hmm. might be the main narrator in the next story. You know, you don't know. But right. the one thing, the one thing that links all the stories is this crime that's been committed against this young Moroccan man. Mm-hmm. And this crime is there right from page three or four, you know, right mm-hmm. even from before the place where I read. It's mm-hmm. clear that some kind of crime has been committed. And this crime throws a shadow through the book, you know, because mm-hmm. you, you do end up finding out the perpetrator of the crime and you, and, and the perpetrator even, you know, is, there's a kind of justice that mm-hmm. is delivered, but it's not at all the kind of justice that you might expect. Um, so, you know, there's a, so there's kind of all kinds of subtle connections between these three stories, but in a sense, they all stand alone as well, you know, rather like kind of, I think of them like fairy tales almost, they all have fairy tale titles. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the, the giant of Saria, the king of Castel del Fels, the carpenter of Montjuic, and those are three different areas of Barcelona, but, you know, the idea of the king, the giant and the carpenter, they're almost like fairy tale characters. Well, I feel like one of the best things about like, I mean, writing about a city like Barcelona is that there is a kind of fairy tale element to it. There's a, there's a story, there's stories and there's, there's stories that feel kind of like folk tales in yeah. like a city like that. And I feel like a lot of cities have that, like Los Angeles has that problem. London, you have that there too, but like- in You know, this... I don't think so. I, I weirdly really? don't feel that in London. I, I, I absolutely agree with you about Los Angeles and, and mm-hmm. about Barcelona. I mean, because, I mean, the thing about Barcelona is there's, there's kind of magic on the streets happening right. almost every day. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons for that is because that it, you know, it's, it's obviously, a, it's a Catholic country Mm-hmm. Um, and so they have all these saints days mm-hmm. and so there are endless festivals you know you, you'll come out of your door one evening and there's like men running down the street dressed as mm-hmm. sheep letting off fireworks you know and you think mm-hmm. what's what's going on I've no idea which right. festival this is but it's great <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and so the, and, and then you get things like um, I remember that I, I used to my office in Barcelona was in a mm-hmm. convent <laughs> It's a long story, but it was in a convent at the back of the city, and yeah. um, the little tiny city bus that only held about twenty people that went up to that part of the city. Mm-hmm. And one day I got in there, and you know, there's a kind of tray next to the driver where you'd normally put your change. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the people who were paying by cash, that is, yeah. and I, there, there was this great bunch of uh, wild mint, mm-hmm. the plant, you know, in the yeah. tray where the money should be. And I, I simply, I asked the, I asked the uh, driver, I said, what, what's this doing here? And he said, oh, you know, it's just this old guy who uh, lives right at the, in the hills at the top of the city. And yeah. he just found all this beautiful fresh mint and he wanted to give me some, you know, this little present. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of thing just doesn't happen in London. There's, there was some kind of connection with the land and connection mm. with the seasons and, and connection. And, and as I've said, kind of with religious life, mm. um, with, with the, with the deep past, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I, um, you don't I, get. You don't get, I mean, maybe it's, I, I was, I lived out in London for a school for a little bit. And I don't know, there's something, there was something, sometimes I'd be like wandering and I'd find myself in certain places where I'd be like, wow, this is things that would happen that I'm like, this, this is, feels very fantastical in some sense. But maybe that's, maybe that's me as an outsider. But no, I feel like 
you, I mean, yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, I was just saying the way you describe Barcelona, though, yeah, I feel like there might be more of a, that energy, that energy and that emotion there. And uh, do The book actually, you know, it's interesting, Lance, because the book, Mm -hmm. the book actually came out of that feeling, you know, it came Mm -hmm. out of my, my love of the place because I moved there in 2000. I actually lived there for six, nearly seven years. Oh, wow. And, uh, and I was in love with the place and I was embedded in it and I was uh, speaking Spanish, but not Catalan. But mm-hmm. I, I kind of, when the crash happened, I realized that I was going to have to leave, you know, that we couldn't mm-hmm. afford to be there anymore. And we right. clung on for another year. But there was an evening when I came out of my office, my little room, my office is a bit of a grand name for it. When I came out of my room in the convent and, and to get home, I would walk down three hills. Um, mm. And at the top of the first hill, and you know, it was, the sun would be setting by the time I finished work. And I remember just looking at the city laid out below me, half of it in shadow, half of it still in sunlight because the sun was setting behind me. Right. And, um, and I looked at it and I thought, you've got to remember this. You've got to burn this into your mind because soon you won't be seeing it anymore. And there was a kind of heartbreak about that. And I was feeling a kind of nostalgia for something that wasn't even over yet, you know, right. but I knew it was going to be over. And I, mm-hmm. and I, as I, as you said in your introduction, I've lived in a lot of places in the world, but this was mm-hmm. the first time that I'd ever really had this feeling of loss. Mm-hmm. And it was out of that feeling that I decided to start writing about the city. And it was really literally in the last three months of my time there. From one day to the next, I decided to try and capture the city, you know, by writing about it. I had no idea what what was going to happen when I when I started writing. All I had was the image, which I've already described, you know, at the beginning of this was the sound of a man crying in the middle of the night. Because because mm-hmm. the office I'd had previously to the, the one in the convent was, <laughs> I've always had strange offices. I don't know why it is, but you know, I end up oh, in the amazing. weirdest rooms. <laughs> this, this room, the first room, the first room I worked in in the city was an old classroom on the ground floor of a building. It had no windows. It had yellow walls and it was huge, like a squash court. You know, it was like 25 feet by 25 feet with mm-hmm. a blackboard. And I had to leave the window, I had to leave the door open because Otherwise, I'd kind of asphyxiate, you know, I'd, I'd use up all the oxygen in the room yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of pass out. But but underneath this classroom, this room I worked in was an underground mm-hmm. car park. So I used to hear people jingling their keys and I used to hear people on their cell phones. And it was really, really clear. I could hear what they were saying. Mm-hmm. So I just so I suddenly had the idea of hearing someone crying mm-hmm. in, the, in that car park. And that's all I began with. And I just ran with that. And I had no idea of what, where I was going or what was going to come, you know, so, um, but it, so that's how the book began as a really as a kind of love letter to the city. And then it kind mm. of turned into something else because, you know, in some ways it's quite critical of the city, uh, certain aspects of the city, like, as I've mentioned already, the racism was, was mm. perhaps more evident be- than it would be in London because the population yeah was much more divided, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think in those, in those small cultures like Barcelona, you know, they, they have the Catalan culture and they have to protect the culture. But mm-hmm. in protecting the culture, they tend to have 
the, the danger with protecting your own culture and overprotecting it is you, you, you come, what comes with that is a kind of xenophobia and racism, because you start right. fearing the other, you start fearing the people who are coming in, mm -hmm. you know, who you fear changing your culture. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of fear of the Moroccans. There was, a, you know, and, and, and friends of mine, um, I had a, a Japanese a friend and a, an Indian friend, both women. They mm -hmm. both, um, at certain points in their time there, people would assume they were someone else's maid, mm -hmm. simply because they were foreign, you know? Yeah. Uh, so... I kind of, the racism was, was really quite apparent in a way mm. that in London, it's much, London's much more of a mixed population. You know, actually white, in London, in London now, white people are in the minority. Mm. We're, we're less than 50%, you know, which I, I always thought is a great thing. You know, the, the one thing you're, you're talking about having been in London, I think the one mm. wonderful thing about London is it's such a melting pot, you know, yeah. you really have people from everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you, you never know who you're going to meet when you walk around the corner. You know, yeah. there's, there's, there are, the city is full of extraordinary people. Um, so I, that's the reason why I love it, but yeah. not for anything else. And that, I mean, what you just said too about, I kind of want to go back on what you said about when you were leaving and that feeling of wanting, of like, you know, burning that image into your mind because you, yeah. you had that feeling of loss there. Do you think with writing this book and after seeing it and seeing how it was received and it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be read and also just like rereading and going back to it that you've kept that memory now and now you, is this the, your way the of book kind is, of- The book is such a different thing. I mean, the mm -hmm. thing, you know, the way, uh, I really had no idea how I was going to try and capture the city. So, you know, this this book is 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 kind of a surprise to me because I didn't know that's what I thought until I finished it. Um, right. And you know, it's often it's often the case with a book you don't really know what you're you're doing until you've done it. And it's it's really interesting to get other people's reactions because because you know, for me, other people's any reader's reaction is as valid as mine. You know, any reader's opinion is as valid as mine because that's the whole magic of a book. You know, the, the point of the book is that the book is in the middle and there's a reader on one side and there's a writer on the other. And the reader and the writer will probably never meet, but they sort of meet through the book. Mm. And, and the book has an effect on the reader. And then, um, you, you know, and if you're, the, if you're lucky as the writer, you'll start to hear those things from the reader and you'll hear what they think. Mm. And it's nearly always a complete surprise, you know. Um, one thing that people have said, which is, I suppose, gratifying, is that the sense of place is extraordinary. You know, that, that some, someone just wrote to me today and said, wow, I can really smell the city, you know. And wow. that, that idea of um, the old Flannery O'Connor idea, Flannery O'Connor mm. being one of my favorite writers, um, you know, she said, fiction operates through the senses. And, mm -hmm. and I've always tried to write in that way, like all the senses, you know, not just obviously sight is the obvious one, but you know, you want right. to feel like touching things, smelling things, um, uh, as well as feeling them. So, you know, that, that, that's kind of, that's a lovely thing to hear that, that um, people have also said, you know, I, I almost feel like I've, I went, I've been to Barcelona now, even though I've never been there, you know, 
this is like the best way to travel. Yeah. And of course, that's true of that, that's true of fiction. You know, when fiction mm -hmm. takes you places, and if it's done well, mm -hmm. you feel like you're there. Today's episode of Skylit is brought to you by Rare Bird Lit. Critics have called it gripping and a must-read. Unstoppable by Joshua M. Green is the unbelievable true story of Ziggy B. Wiltzig's astonishing journey from Auschwitz survivor and penniless immigrant to Wall Street legend. Out now in hardcover from Insight Editions. Now, back to the episode. Well, it's one of my favorite things as a bookseller to like help people find is that like, I mean, especially in the past in the past year when people have been kind of landlocked and not able to go travel yeah. and see new yeah. places. And I mean, like a place like- There's been a hunger for books, hasn't there? There's been a hunger for books, I think, to, to escape. It's like the escapism yeah. of, I mean, Especially I can, we're in London, I can imagine, or any, like Europe, because it's so easy to travel there. Um, yeah. I imagine people are hungry for that. And so a book like Barcelona Dreaming, I think is very important to come out to help people like discover the way that you see Barcelona too, in the way that you've discovered how you see Barcelona. And I mean, like, one of one of the things I love to do as a bookseller is get people to different spaces like that. So yeah, I, I used to I, work in a bookstore as well. Mm -hmm. I, I worked in um, this famous bookstore in New York called The Strand. Oh yeah, I, love I mean, the Strand. When you are you from New York or I'm oh. from Connecticut, so I'm from right outside of New York. So I've been to New York many times. Yeah, I yeah. went to The Strand. Yeah, I love The Strand. Yeah, so it was a, a fascinating place to work, and you know, you find mm -hmm. that you're in the then you start looking at all the people who've worked there, like Patty Smith and, yeah. you know, and then like Mary Gateskill, the writer also mm -hmm. worked there. Um, but I mean, one of my favorite things was always to, to steer people towards, you know, people would come up to me and say, I like this kind of thing, but I can't mm -hmm. find anything and I'm not sure what's going to be like that. And you say, oh, right. right. Well, have you tried this? Mm -hmm. um, I, I love that whole recommending thing. Or sometimes you go totally left field and mm -hmm. say, I think you should try this, you know? Yeah. Um, something maybe you've never heard of or thought of. I, I, love I mean, the other day I was telling someone was like, I love all this nonfiction. I'm like, that's great. And I can see the theme that you like in nonfiction there. And I can find you a similar theme in fiction where you get yeah. that escapism and you get to see someone else's. I, I mean, with everything that happened last year with the Black Lives Matter movement, one of my things was not to recommend people nonfiction, but to recommend them fiction so they get the same feeling and the same education they're getting from the nonfiction while being able to see them see another perspective, which yeah. I think is very important. And like a book like yours with, with six or seven different perspectives, like narr like narratives in there, I think is so important for people to see this other world that they they wouldn't have experienced with if they didn't look for this kind of fiction. And yeah, you've you've kind of also got a big. Yeah, the range of voices is quite wide in this book as yeah. well. So, you know, you feel like you're, hopefully you feel like you're visiting every corner of the place, mm. you know, or you're, you're, you're getting this very rich slice. Let's put it yes. like that, you know, you're getting a rich slice of it. Exactly. And I think, yeah, it's, it is, you are getting that rich slice of it. And it's just, I mean, your book is a love letter to Barcelona, but also it seems like a love letter to that time period in the and it, you you said earlier you were in Barcelona during right before the crash and during yeah what about that specific time period where you like that's where I want to set my book 
we kind of said like it was the calm before the storm, but like, what about that calm that made you say that's the that's the space I want to write this in? Well, no, I, it was it was just uh, it was uh, force of circumstance, you know, because mm -hmm. because I was simply the moment when I started writing, um, I was thinking I'm going to capture the Barcelona mm -hmm. that I'm about to leave, and in a way, the crash was coming, but. I was kind of capturing that golden moment or that golden era just before. And, and it was odd because there was always a sense in the early 2000s in Barcelona that things were too good. You know, I, I couldn't quite believe how people were living and how easy everything was. And you kind of forget that, you know, because now, of course, with the, with the virus and the pandemic and everything, people are talking about getting back to normal. You know, that we've been yeah. through this thing and there's this idea that we want to get back to normal, but of course there isn't mm. such a thing as normal, you know? Yeah. It wasn't normal before, because mm. that was always how it was. You know, it was right. like that for a little bit, but before that it was like something else. Mm. So, so, you know, there is no normal to go back to. Right. And of course, we're not gonna go back to normal because we're gonna, we're gonna have been changed by what's happened. Yeah, you know, we can't like, help but be changed. The whole like, idea of, sorry go on no i was gonna say there was like eight different things that happened last year on top of the pandemic too so how could we go back from all these big events that have happened yeah uh, i mean I, I think i i think once i was once i was writing about that time then i i loved the idea of um you know it's almost like the way people talk about how Europe was before the First mm. World War. You know, there was right. this idyllic feeling, you know, apparently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was, it was, a, it was a, a, just a golden time and then, mm -hmm. then everything was smashed. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, weirdly, we've lived through two of these things now, you know, mm -hmm. we're living through one now, we lived through one then. Right. Um, and we sort of forget that, that that's what life is made up of those sudden mm -hmm. changes and those unexpected things, you know, and of course right. that should be, I always, I mean, I guess I'm a cup half full person, but I <laughs> always think those yeah. things should be a dynamic thing rather right. than a negative thing, you know. Mm -hmm. The idea that we can't get back to how it was isn't, isn't a bad thing because we needed to change quite a lot about how things were, you know, and I, and I think that really strongly about about now is that it frustrates me that so many people are talking about getting back to normal because actually I think that we should be using this time as a way of um, as a way of actually rethinking the world that we live in you know there are yeah. so many things wrong with the way we're living mm -hmm. and there's a lot that needs to change and you know the fact that in London London was extraordinary this time last year because mm -hmm. you know we live in this room, you know, we live under a, I live under a flight path into Heathrow, oh, wow. Oh, wow. you know, from, from about 5.30 in the morning, planes mm. start coming over and they come over about every 90 seconds. Oh, wow. um, suddenly last year, you know, in the spring, the skies were quiet. Yeah. You could hear the birds. The air was fresher because no one was driving. And, you yeah. know, and instead of saying, why don't we make London more like this? People talk about going back to how it was before, you know. Yeah. Whereas actually, what we need to do is clean up the air and clean yes. up the skies. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's it's kind of I think young people have a better handle on this than than older people. You know, it's the older people tend to want to 
keep things as they are, you know, it's a fear of change. It is, I mean, there is, I, I see that when I was, same thing about a year ago, there was less people on the roads, people were out walking, people were um, just like, you know, being outside more because they felt safer yeah. outside. There was uh, more communication, like you were talking with people, I was talking with friends around the world that I hadn't talked to recently because we were trying yeah. to make sure we were okay. And then, I mean, there was a, there, there was a lot of bad, I mean, a lot of bad last year, but I mean, there was things that I feel like could stay the same and how we, yeah, the cleaner air, the caring about the environment more, people being yeah. more resourceful and reaching out and communicating more. No, that's, and the did way you, that you even you just, know, what, what sorry, are you I just saying? Want, uh, did you notice um, how also certain friendships have you had this experience where certain mm. friendships have started over the phone or over Zoom? Yeah. You know, where, yeah. you know, you have you don't actually ever see that person mm -hmm. in in real life, but mm. you this friendship develops with someone you've hardly knew, and yeah. it becomes quite intense because mm -hmm. you know every time you phone someone, it's like an hour and a half, right? Because you, you know, because it's instead of seeing them, exactly. You know, and you can't go and see them. And it's, I mean, I've, I've connected with, uh, I can probably like a four or five people that I haven't talked to in like 10 years that I'm now like talking to regularly again, because we just, it, it, we found a new way to connect that way. We've been, we, it's, a, I feel like technology before pre-pandemic was like, oh, we don't want, we, if we're not seeing each other face to face on the regular, we're not talking to each other. But then we were like, oh, that's a completely not an option anymore. So then we were like, oh, I mean, technology definitely has its negatives, but then there was, this felt like a big positive of us being like, oh, I'm going to share this part of my life with you in a way that I wasn't mm -hmm. able to before. Mm -hmm. And like, it just, it felt so important to have them, to have this, you know, amazing connection with people. But also what you were saying before of like, seeing the time period in the way that your book has it, like the right before this, right before this, you know, this new period in the world. I, I um, It reminded me of, have you read Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers at all? Nope. Rebecca, yeah. uh -huh. It's a fan, fantastic book about like, the half of it takes place during the Chicago and the AIDS crisis. And she, there's a character in there who uh, was in France during World the right before the second world war, I believe. And she says that, she says that there was a, the, the idea like, like this renaissance spirit of just artists and, you know, lovers and uh, beautiful mm. people just hate, just in the city, just the, just the most amazing people she's ever met in the city. Then the war happened. And then there's this new period of just like, you know, all that was lost during that. And like- I don't mean to- I don't mean to talk about myself again, but, but yeah, no, no, but, please do. This is about you. <laughs> the weird thing is, you're describing some. You're describing something I I dealt with in my last book, which was called mm. Never Anyone But You, which is about these two French, two French uh, women who were mm. lovers. They were lesbians mm. in Paris before the Second World War, and mm. they fought the Nazis. You know, they fought in the resistance, but their mm. own particular campaign against the Nazis. And, mm. um, you know, they were part of that Paris, yeah. that Paris that you're talking about, that where, where it's basically Paris was the capital of the world culturally right. at, that, at that time. You know, mm. any, everyone who was anyone was there. 
yeah. you know, so yeah. you could walk around the corner and there was a Hemingway and there was Picasso and, mm -hmm. you know, you name it, they were all there. So it was an extraordinary mm -hmm. period. I mean, like, and then in this, in, it was to imagine all that loss in the same way that, I mean, Rebecca Mackay talks about like the, the height of like this like gay and queer renaissance in uh, different cities yeah. where it was a very like queer and you found a community that was ripped apart by this disease that came out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's kind of, I mean, it reminds me of your book where this financial crisis came out of nowhere, but there was this period beforehand of just like love and connection and humanity before that. And I mean, happening right now, happening right now with the pandemic, there was, there's, there was that. And I mean, there might be afterwards. I, I, the way people are talking about how they're gonna, how things are gonna be uh, after the pandemic, which is, that's its own thing. But it's, but it's, it, it feels like um, before there was this like, oh, I, the things I did before, I didn't even realize how good I had it and how much yeah. fun I was having beforehand. Yeah. So I, that's, I that's think the, way it's, the taking for granted, you know, it's like exactly. you, you have to keep, it's almost like as you, as time goes by and as you're living, you kind of have to mm -hmm. remind yourself to never take things for granted. I, I yeah. try and do that, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's really hard though, because you, because, but you, you have to remind yourself that these things are luxuries in a way, you know, the things that you have. Yeah. Um, the weird thing is I'm, I'm writing now, um, the book I'm, I started a book on Valentine's Day last year, so the pandemic hadn't started. I mean, it had started, but we didn't really take it seriously at that point. There was some cruise ship, you know, moored off Tokyo, yeah. and there were people dying on that ship, the Diamond Princess, I think it was called. And I remember yeah. this news item in January, February last year. I remember thinking, oh, that's... That's a really interesting um, setup for a novel. You know, this ship marooned off, off the coast of a major world city and they can't get off, you know, and people are dying. And, and yeah. I never really imagined what was gonna happen as a result of that. But, but um, I started a novel and, and weirdly it's, it's doing, it's, this, there's a similarity with the one we're talking about tonight, you know, mm -hmm. or today um, in the sense that I'm setting it in 2019 just before the pandemic hits so it's an it's another it's, it's going to be another pre-crisis book except this is going to be about someone who um decides that they have to take action about the way things mm -hmm. are you no, know that's quite extreme that i mean yeah and i mean but also like you know it's something i feel like people will be able to connect to in that and yeah. especially right now and I think that's, I mean, with Barcelona Dreaming, I feel like you are definitely finding, to come out right now, to come out in this, in this space, or it's very, it's something everyone will be able to connect to. Everyone lived in the world, everyone, I mean, except for like, you know, children who might not yeah. be able to connect to this that well, yeah. but every person has experienced right now the world pre-pandemic and during the during the pandemic and yeah. can be able to really appreciate I think in a way that maybe we were taking for granted before that period of peace before uh calm before the storm I'll bring that yeah. back um, yeah <laughs> and, ho and hopefully there'll be a uh, calm after the storm a storm then calm um well I think this well this has been a fantastic talk Rupert oh, this it's has been, been lovely talking to you 
Thank you so much. It's so great to have a, an interview that's like a conversation. Yeah, you know, because no I kind of hate, I, I've always hated the, the formal question and answer right. thing, you know, mm -hmm. where it goes back and forward and it's a bit sterile. Right. You know, well, and okay, maybe there's lots of things we haven't talked about to do with the book, but I mean, as long as you had a good time. <laughs> I mean, is there anything else about the book you would like to talk about? I mean, I felt like we we covered like the motion and the, the time yeah. period and the, I mean, and just like, you know, got to know, I think the listeners got to know you and got to know what about the, what motivated you and how you feel about the book. And I, you well, know, you know, I, yeah, I, I totally agree because there's no, mm -hmm. you know, there's never any point, um, which is what a lot of book reviews do, where they, the book reviews yeah. basically tell you what happens in the book. You know, there's no, <laughs> point, no point me telling you what happens in the book, otherwise I right. might as well not have written it. Go so on. it's much better to talk around, you know, yeah. abstractly around the themes and around the feeling and around the emotions. Those are the important yeah. things. I mean, you could probably um, understand this too as a bookseller at the Strand, I mean, well, bookstores to work at, but I mean, as a bookseller, you don't want to tell people, I don't like telling people about the book. I want them to feel how I feel about the book more than they, um, more than anything. I want them to- Do you know, do you know this, Lance, do you know this um, American, uh, sorry, American, uh, amazing Russian film director called Andrei Tarkovsky? Yes, yes, yes. He did yes. movies like The Sacrifice, and mm. um, and and he had he had this wonderful. He wrote this book called Sculpting in Time. Oh, wow. It's basically about the. It's about making films, um, mm. but it but it's almost like a, a creative manual. You know, it's about how you create and what it's like to create. And in there, he says, um, a book read by a thousand different people is a thousand different books. And I just love that because it's exactly what you said, you know, you should not be mm -hmm. telling a reader what what a book is or what it does, because what it does for you is different from what it's going to do for them. Exactly. And it's, I 100% agree with that. It's perspective. It's life. Someone could have, someone, you like, someone could read something and have lived a totally different life than you and get that thing that you might not get. Or, I mean, I feel like that's... Um, with many books that I've reread that I read when I was younger, I've gotten a deeper appreciation for it because I've lived, yeah. long, I've lived a different life than I did when I was younger. And it just like, it's important to go back. And this is a challenge for all the listeners out there too. Go back and read something you read 10, 20 years ago and see how you feel about it now. And it might be totally different. I, and if but the you book can also is a really... No, sorry, if the sorry. book is a really good one, it'll, it'll tell you how you've changed. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's almost like it's almost like reading that book will tell you how different you are from the person you exactly. were when you last read it. Exactly, and how much you've grown. Like even if yeah. I I've, I have that with some books where I read them and I I realize that I'm not I don't feel the same way I felt like I felt uh, either positive or negative, and I'm just like, oh, that's because I've learned new things and I can I am a different person. It's like that. Yeah. I think of that. Isn't there like a study or something that like every you're a new person every seven years because literally your body like through like f food and your environment like just like the cells are like i think your cells are supposed to change that's yeah, right cells are supposed to yeah. change so you're you're literally a new person than you were seven years before so like of course you change so i think no that's very important uh in getting that emotion i feel like 
especially, uh, I mean, I said that after your reading, I felt that emotion there. I felt the emotion in the book and I don't, and I think the listeners will too. And people, I mean, also, I didn't even talk about the cover. The cover is beautiful. Yeah. I, yeah. I actually I held a physical, I held a physical copy of it last night and I was like, wow, this is a beautiful book. <laughs> um, yeah. I held, I, they were putting on the store and I was just like looking at the cover and I was like, this is gonna, people are gonna look at this and buy it because of how beautiful it looks. Oh, I hope so. I mean, I do think it looks great. It's just, mm -hmm. and very subtly, it's got the Catalan colors, you know, yellow and mm -hmm. red. Um, yes. But, you know, I think the reason why, uh, you know, you, you started it off so beautifully because your reaction to the reading was wonderful. And the way you just started, you just started um, talking about the emotion of it and, and the mm -hmm. compassion. And that was such a, that's such a great way to go into the interview rather than simply starting with the first question that you wrote down. Yeah sometime earlier right. today you know um right. so i appreciate your naturalness no i i appreciate like you being a great conversation partner i mean i just had a this has been so fun first off was just to be able to have this conversation but also just so i don't know intellectual not in the not in like the pretentiousness of intellectualism but intellectual in the sense of like I feel like I've learned and grown through this conversation and realized you know we realize things uh that I didn't even realize I knew in that way and that's I feel like what makes a good conversation so thank you for thank you for giving me that thank you oh, this is this has been fantastic. Um, do you have any last things you would like to say to you know the listeners and the book lovers in the bookstore community? As oh, well? uh, I I have I only have two things to say. Um, um, one is directed at writers or would be writers, mm -hmm. and it's and it's a quote from um, this one of my all time favorite writers who's. Isaac Dinesen, who mm -hmm. she's also known as Karen Blixen. She wrote Out of Africa, this me famous memoir called Out of Africa, which was turned into a film. But mm -hmm. actually, much more interesting are her incredible short stories called um, Winter's Tales mm -hmm. and Last Tales. She writes these extraordinary, enigmatic, um, mysterious, fable-like short stories, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier. She's right. always been a great inspiration for me. And she she says this um, in one of her stories, uh, which I think is great advice for writers. Mm -hmm. Be not afraid of absurdity. Do not shrink from the fantastic. Within a dilemma, choose the most unheard of, the most dangerous solution. Be brave, wow. be brave. So that's, that's, that's one thing. And then the other thing is, is for the, all the readers out there, and I just mm -hmm. wanna say really simply, you have to support the independent bookstores. Um, please, please go to Skylight and buy your books there. But there's also, you know, actually Los Angeles has quite a number of great yeah. bookstores, great independent bookstores. Um, Book Soup is the most famous one, I guess, but there are plenty yeah. of others. What's that one in Westwood? Um, uh, uh, which I've done Romans, a reading at. Romans, um, yeah. I can't remember Romans. But anyway, I mean, that would be, that's the thing I wanted to say, just let's support the independent bookstores. Yes, and that's, that's, I mean, like, every bookstore in Los Angeles, you know, I mean, I, one of my favorite things to do when I go to a new city is go to as many of the independent bookstores as I can, yeah. 
And I mean, London also isn't short of independent, amazing independent bookstores. We have less than we used to, but you know, yeah. because like everywhere, the chains, the chains have kind of taken over a little bit. But no, we I mean, still like, have great ones. I mean, my favorite, which one? Gaze the Word was a my favorite out there. Um, right. But also, like, uh, just there's too many, too many to name. But um. There's, but yeah, it's, thank you for, what's your favorite out there, your favorite independent bookstore out there? What, in London? Yeah. Um, I, I love one, there's, there's a couple actually, but I love the one in the East End, mm -hmm. which is called Burley Fisher. Oh. Um, basically I have a, have a relationship with them because uh, they, mm -hmm. they supplied books. I, when I have uh, book launches, uh, when books mm -hmm. come out, I, I'm sort of, I've always had great parties. Mm -hmm. um, I love to have a party for a book um, and it's really unfortunate that this is the second of my books that's come out during lockdown so mm -hmm. second time I'm not having a party but Burley Fisher supplied the books sold books at my last book launch so they're, mm -hmm. they're a terrific bookstore and there's one in the west uh, called Lutchins and Rubenstein mm -hmm. um, which is in Notting Hill um, that's a great one but uh, there's John Sando in Chelsea Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we have we have a lot of bookstores. Um, yeah. So yeah, we it's 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 hard to it's hard to support bookstores because we we're out of the habit of going to them. You know, and we mm -hmm. we've had to be ordering our books online. But I don't know, we've got to get back in the habit, and yeah. um, because there's no, it's just not the same when you browse That's online. Right. You know, if you're in a bookstore, in a magical, my favorite bookstore, I have to say in in the US is probably City Lights, you know? Yeah, yeah. Because, City Lights books. Because, you know, I had this great experience where um, I was on a book tour. This, I can't even remember when it was, probably, probably 20 years ago now. And I got to San Francisco. And in those days, you used to have a guy, uh, someone pick you up from the mm. airport. They'd be your escort in the city. They'd take you to the bookstore mm. for the event and take you to your hotel and stuff. And, right. and uh, the guy who was driving me, I, he said, is there any way you want to go particularly? And I said, I want to go to City Lights because I've never seen it. And he right. said, I don't normally take authors there because they, their books are never stocked there. So they go into the bookstore and they just don't find their books and then they're just really sad and disappointed. Um, I said, well, I don't care if they don't stock my books. You know, I just want to see the place and walk around right. and smell it and feel it and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, because of the history of it, you know, it has this incredible yeah. history. So anyway, I got to the bookstore, I got to City Lights and I walked in and then I found three of my books on the shelf. Oh my God, it was meant to be. <laughs> so immediately I went upstairs, I went to the kind of manager's office and it's run by this mm -hmm. great guy called Paul Yamazaki. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we sort of became friends actually. Uh, nice. So I love that store. No, it's, a, it's one of, I mean, it's, I know so much about the history. I've never been, but it's on my list to go visit there mm. because for that, honestly, one of the reasons I want to go to the city, that city is just to see City Lights books. So yeah. no, that's, I mean- That's enough of a reason, that's enough of a reason. It's a wonderful, no, I, <laughs> I have no, no um, shame for that reason at all. Um, well, this has been fantastic. And amazingly enough uh, to the listeners, to, on our, the day we're recording the first of, June is the paperback release in the U.S., right? So, is Today it is the same. Yeah, is it the U.S. only or the U.K. too? Is U.S. The, U.K. is uh, U.K. is a week today. Next Tuesday. A week today. Next Tuesday. Yeah. So, um, but no, that's it's 
so go on. You have no excuse to not go get to grab this book. It, it'll be Perfect it'll timing. be on both in the U.S. and the U.K. when this podcast comes out. So go out, go grab it. Go look at the cover because I promise you'll see this cover and be intrigued. But yeah. go grab yourself a copy and just immerse yourself in the wonderful city um, of Barcelona. Um, this has been um, this was Rupert Thompson with his book Barcelona Dreaming. You can order it now on www.skylightbooks.com, or just go into Skylight Books and grab a copy. It'll be on display with our podcast section, but also in our fiction section. You'll find it. So come on by. Um, thank you so much, Rupert, for coming on today. This has been a pleasure, and thank you to the listeners again for coming back and listening to our wonderful podcast. You have a beautiful rest of your day and we'll be back soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.